Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest podcast, number 921, with Stephen M. R. Covey about a very new book that just broke called Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. This podcast, number 921, is brought to you by Dale Merle, co-author of another Franklin Covey book called Strikingly Different Selling, Six Vital Skills to Stand Out and Sell More. If you want to know more about Dale Merle, his co-authors in the book Strikingly Different Selling, please visit the website at www.franklincovey.com. That's www.franklinfranklincovey.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to this really, really engaging interview with author Stephen M. R. Covey about his new book, Trust and Inspire, How to Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining us from the shadows of the Rocky Mountains. Now, where is that, Stephen? Uh, near the Sundance Ski Resort. Oh, okay. Okay. I saw it on your bio. It said the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So we're going to be speaking to Stephen M. R. Covey about his book called Trust and Inspire, uh, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. Um, Gosh, we could talk about Vladimir uh, uh, from Ukraine all day long because the guy's a fantastic leader. And then we could talk about the other side of the coin, Mr. Putin, not such a great leader. But in all respects to everybody, I think this is for business people who want to move from command and control to trust and inspire. And I want to let people know just a tad uh, Stephen M.R. is co-founder and CEO of Covey Link and the Franklin Global uh, Trust Practice. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Speed of Trust, which I read. Great book. A sought-after and compelling keynote author, advisor, trust, leadership, ethics, culture, and collaboration. Uh, he speaks to audiences around the world, a Harvard MBA. He's a former CEO of Covey Leadership Center which is under the uh, under his stewardship, became the largest leadership development company in the world. Um, and as he said, he's in the shadows of the, the Rockies there with his wife and children. So look, you know, you start this book off with an introduction. Uh, you tell a great story about Death Valley and use an analogy contributed uh, by Sir Kenneth Robinson, which has been on TEDx talks and viewed millions of times that maybe it should be called Dormant Valley. Uh, Can you tell the story and the correlation between the story and the greatness that really lies within all of us and really all leaders, I would say, you know, because that's who we're addressing today is how are you going to become a better leader? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Death Valley is one of the hottest places on earth, if not the hottest. And it's also one of the driest places because it's so hot and dry, nothing grows there. And so that's why they call it Death Valley, because there's no growth of anything. But interestingly, for no apparent reason, in the winter of 2004, uh, six inches of rain came down in just a very short period, in a matter of days. And so sometimes they would go, they went 40 months one time with only a half inch of rain. So this is phenomenal. Six inches of rain came down. And sure enough, just a few months later in that spring, suddenly wildflowers blossomed and carpeted the entire Death Valley. And, and, and it came up and, and, and people didn't know that that was there. That was possible. And that's where uh, the late Sir Kenneth Robinson said, maybe we shouldn't call it Death Valley, but Dormant Valley, because the seeds were there all along. They just needed the right conditions for the seeds to flourish, to blossom. I make the point in a very real sense, people are like that. The, the life is in the seed. The life is in the person. The power is in the person. They just need the right conditions for them to also have a chance to grow, to develop, to blossom, to unleash 
their capabilities, their potential, their greatness. And, and, um, and so if you, it, the idea for leadership is to see yourself as a gardener. Yeah. Good Not as a mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> you're a gardener. You're trying to cultivate. You're trying to create the conditions for the seed to flourish. But the power is in the seed. The life is in the seed, meaning the life, the power is in the person, in the people. And your job as a leader is to cultivate and unleash that capability, that power, like what happened at Death Valley when those rains came. That's the a, idea. It was a great way to open the book. And I love the fact that, you know, we're really talking about a soul, um, you know, because with inside everyone is this soul, but everybody has an ego as well. And it's this constant battle, command and control ego versus this love and compassion side, which is the soul side, which we really need to move business to. And you state that trust and inspire is a new way to lead. Its goal is to unleash people's talent and potential to truly empower them and inspire them rather than try to contain and control them. Um, it's about trusting people to do the right thing and inspiring them to make meaningful contributions. How do you help leaders realize that this paradigm needs to occur to reduce turnover, increase innovation and productivity and build a culture that is aligned with the mission of the organization? So big question. I get yeah. it. There's a lot wrapped up in that, but if anyone can answer it, you can. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Greg, I'll try. I, I would say this, just look at how our world has changed really in front of our eyes, but also over the last decade plus time where everything has changed through technology and, and through how the workforce itself has changed. The workplace has changed coming out of COVID, work from home, work from anywhere, hybrid work, intentionally flexible work, inflexible work remote work. And people have choices and options like they didn't have before. And so um, if we continue to kind of try to manage people like we have in the past, that kind of flows out of the old, you know, industrial age paradigm of command and control, it, but we've become better at it, a more enlightened command and control, I like to say. The problem with that is that we're not going to be able to create the kind of high trust culture that inspires people today so that they want to be part of your team, your organization, and they want to stay and that you'll bring out, you'll, you'll win the war for talent and, and, and attract the best people and you'll bring out the best in people. And you can't do that with the old model of command and control. That doesn't inspire anyone. You might be able to force things to happen and, 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 you know, muscle it out, grind it out. But people don't volunteer. They don't choose it. And, they, and, and today, when they have so many choices, they'll leave and go somewhere else where they feel trusted, where they feel inspired. So we'll never win the war for talent if we stay with the old style of leadership. We've got to shift to a new style. I'm calling it trust and inspire versus command and control. And the same thing. So that's the first is I call that the first epic imperative is that we've got to win in the workplace by building and creating a high trust culture that inspires people. Well, you have three epic imperatives that we'll get to. Yes. But, you know, you remind me as you're speaking, I just got a book in here from Chenard, the Patagonia guy, and it says, let my people go surfing. That's the title of the book, right? I love it. Now, the, the interesting thing is you find a lot of these companies, Stephen, that are embracing trust and inspire are also bracing high levels of autonomy and are, are, are embracing allowing people to be much more creative, thus go surf because it is. They also have a mission and a cause, which is driving him and his is the environment. It's like, you know, he puts an ad on the website, don't buy this jacket, right? It's like, well, but I sell jackets. Well, don't buy it if you already have a jacket and you're going to pollute the environment because we have to cut material and do things, right? I love companies like that. And there are more and more that we're seeing. You know, you mentioned that you shared the stage with your late father so many times and that he would always ask two questions of the audience. And this is an important one in which the hands raised 100% of the time agreeing with the questions. Tell the audience what your father asked and why still today we're struggling with the command and control mindset within these organizations. Because 
I, I love those two questions. And honest to goodness, the hands went up a hundred percent of the time. It was yes. your your dad was great at drawing people in, but that was good. He was also good at pauses. <laughs> he really, he really was. And so the, these were um, seminars that we were presenting all around the world. We might have a thousand people in the room, and so he would say he'd ask this question: How many of you believe that the vast majority of the workforce at your organization? possess far more talent, creativity, ingenuity, intelligence, and ability than their current jobs require or even allow them to contribute? How many have more potential than you can contribute? Every hand would go up. And then he'd he'd pause, (laughs) and then he'd ask a follow-on question. And how many of you believe that... um, the vast majority of your workforce and your organization are under immense and growing pressure to produce more with less. And again, almost every hand would go up on that one too. So think about that. Then you just pause and have people think about this, that people have far more to give former creativity, talent, intelligence to give than their, um, than they're allowed or or required or even allowed to give. And yet everyone is feeling the pressure to do more with less. And yet they have all this capability. They're not able to give. And and it's kind of like, duh, what's wrong with us? Why, why do we, why do we have this kind of gap? This is a leadership matter. We've got to be able to, as leaders, enable are people to give what they're capable of giving in order to produce the more with left to move to higher levels of performance. And it's almost ironic that we're under pressure to do more with less, and yet we're not tapping into what people are capable of giving. That is a leadership issue. And we've got to, we've got to lead in a way that enables people to give what they're capable, to unleash their capabilities and their talent and their potential, to develop it and unleash it for the service of of our mission. And that was kind of the big aha that everyone at one level would already kind of know. And yet you ask the question, um, and yet yet when that's so obvious at one level, why do we still operate with this command and control? And I think it's because we're just so immersed in it. It's yeah. been part of our culture for years. We're, we're scripted in it. We've, we're trained in it. We're good at it. And it's what we know. It's what we've done. It's the models we've seen. And so it's just easy to kind of perpetuate and continue that and become better at it and more enlightened at it, more sophisticated, you know, bring good elements to it. But our paradigm of how we view people, how we view leadership still hasn't shifted enough. And we're still too much into controlling and containing people and their potential instead of truly developing and unleashing it, which is a trust and inspire paradigm. So I think it's because we're so immersed in the old model. It's in our language, our systems and our structures. It's in our paradigms and old paradigms can live on indefinitely. Even when a new paradigm has been presented, you know, like the idea of bloodletting, which lived on 250 years past, past its known usefulness, but still lived on. And command and control is like modern day bloodletting. <laughs> it still lives on, even though we know it doesn't really work anymore. Well, I but noticed so that you, I noticed you quoted in the book at one point. It was a quote, um, uh, Margaret Wheatley. And you know what's interesting when you look at memes and you look at these things and you look at what we grasp onto, hang on to, and it's the fear of uncertainty to change, right? So, in other words. You look at an ecosystem, it's changing all the time. Uh, the reality is, is that these cultures have to know how to embrace change and be willing, and more than any now, because of the speed of technology, the way things have advanced to do that. And, you know, you quoted Andrea Merkel. The question is not whether we're able to change, but whether we are changing fast enough. Um, what are the five emerging forces that cannot be ignored and that are impacting our work our and our lives in an unprecedented way? 
you started on them a few minutes yeah. ago. So now we got one of them out. Now we have four more we need to get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the, I jumped the gun. I'm That's just, okay. It's okay. It's fine. It, it's, because, it's because the implications of these forces are so significant. But the first I mentioned, which is the nature of the world itself has changed through technology. The pace of change, the amount of change, the type of change, disruptive technologies changes everything. You know, the VUCA world, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. So the world has changed. Second, the nature of work itself has changed. Today, work is far more knowledge-based. It's far more service-oriented. It's far more collaborative, more interdependent, more interactive with people versus kind of the old industrial age work. We still have industrial age work that we do, but even then it's more infused with knowledge and insight. It's the age of collaboration. And, and not just the old uh, industrial age alone. So work itself is changing, Stephen, far more collaborative. Stephen, just a Please. quick, I'm going to throw something Please. in here. Sorry to interrupt. No, I'm happy. You know, you we have words that define and words are so powerful. And I think one of the words, uh, this is my own commentary for the podcast listeners. The word work is outdated. It needs to be replaced with collaboration or connection or whatever, because now what's happening is we, yes, people say, well, do you wake up and go to work? I'd rather say that I wake up and go collaborate with my team. You know, what are you doing today? I'm collaborating, right? So I only say that these words are so strong that they've been so embedded over so long. You know, we still use the word workplace. We, you know, we use these things and I'm telling you from my pee pick and brain, it just seems like we're identifying words that are so strongly attached to old patterns that it's fixed. That's fascinating, Greg, because in a sense, you're saying work comes from the, the command and control paradigm of the industrial age. It does. And, and, and that's what I'm trying to describe. The shift is the nature of the work itself has changed too become a collaboration yeah, and a partnering and an interaction. And sorry and, for interrupting. You no, no, I, lo- I love it. With it those five. Yeah. But actually, it actually kind of makes the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. The work is shifted towards collaboration. Yes. Interaction, interdependence. Yes. yes. Yeah. So now I'm going to go back and use the word work because okay. I'm still, we're also still That's studying it. this, but the nature of the, the work um, place has changed, especially in the last couple of years coming out of this pandemic where suddenly you have people that are able to, to collaborate from home and to, and, and to do remote work or, or hybrid work or yeah. on-site or combinations, intentionally flexible work and collaboration that can go on in new and different ways that we didn't have before. So it's, it, we had some of it before, but it's just dramatically changed. Right. That's the third force. The fourth force is the nature of the workforce itself has changed. It's more diverse than ever before. There's as many as five generations at work with completely different expectations of what leadership looks like and what what collaboration and contribution looks like that they want to make, especially with millennials and Gen Z. You can't be thinking like we used to in the, you know, with the baby boomers and traditionalists and and uh, be, of command and control they don't respond to that right and finally the fifth is the nature of choice has changed and by that i mean this we've gone from what we might call multiple choice to infinite choice there's just so many options and possibilities that people have today that has just been an explosion because of all these other forces and, and technology and the workplace and the workplace being work from anywhere, work from home. So suddenly I can maybe get a job with a company and not live where that company is based because they're okay that I'm working remotely and, and, um, or what have you. I have options and choices I didn't have before. And, and, and the point on that is that suddenly if people have choices, unprecedented choices, then it puts a greater premium. Now, on wanting people to choose to work and to collaborate with you, with your team, with your organization, and because they, if, if, if they don't like it, they can quickly and easily find another place, or they can go into the gig economy and other yeah. options that they just didn't have before. 
So those are the five emerging forces of change that we can ignore, but they won't ignore us. They're happening with or without our Well, they're here to stay. They're here to stay. And I'd say, you know, the paradigm shift or the subconscious is so strong. It used to be said, and it still should be said, I never worked a day in my life because I loved what I did. You know, it was it was so we've blurred the lines around work because we're still calling it work. Mm -hmm. But why even refer to it as work? If what you're doing, you love doing and you've created that environment at Patagonia or wherever it might be that people like to come to Franklin Covey. The fact is, is that if you can get people to love and have their own purpose and be aligned with your purpose, they really never work a day in their life. So that and and to me, when you have that kind of impetus, that kind of drive, you can move mountains, you can uh, help bring the rain on that makes the flowers in the field bloom and everybody come up. And you mentioned that there's two epic imperatives to achieve. And if we cannot deliver on these two epic imperatives, we won't be able to sustain success in our world. What are the two epic imperatives? And can you explain how Microsoft CEO uh, Nadella is a great example of trust and inspire leader? Because you cited him in the book. Um, Interestingly, his two predecessors back, Bill Gates, is building a house literally like six miles from here. And it's like big news because he bought this this uh, huge $43 million house and it was it was immaculate and he ripped it down. And the people are like, oh, why did you rip it down? You're going to build a brand new house again. But Microsoft is one of the companies that has evolved and has taken some pretty big shots over time. Right. You really look at it and you look at Balmer and and um, Bill Gates and all the leaders. But you look at this leader and he's different. He really is different. And I'm glad you profiled him because his book is wonderful and he's a wonderful man. Yes. Yes. And And he's Indian, by the way, which the Eastern philosophy has come over with him and embedded into the company. Yeah, he's a he's really such an Adela, really a remarkable leader. Yeah, and has revitalized Microsoft through his leadership style. Yeah, literally through his style to unleash the capabilities, the talents, the potential. Before he had been there, it was seen as it was almost cutthroat internal competition with each other. A cartoonist drew a cartoon of Microsoft with people on the same team or in the same company facing each other. With guns pointed at each other, yeah. Like the only way to get ahead is to, you know, take someone else out, type of thing. Just cutthroat internal competition, complete transcendence of that mm-hmm. into a culture of collaboration. And once you begin to collaborate, you can begin to innovate, and then you start to attract and retain the best people. And then you collaborate and innovate, and that becomes a virtuous upward spiral. So he's done it, and he's revitalized the organization. And you yeah. see it in their stock price. You see it in their culture and everything else. And so what he's done is he's, he's one in those two epic imperatives. So I, so I jumped the gun earlier. The first one is the idea that we need to build a high trust culture that inspires. So your whole example, Greg, of if you go to work and you love what you're doing, you're not working. Right. It's because you're inspired. You have a sense of purpose, a meaning and contribution that inspires you versus having to be just constantly motivated with more extrinsic rewards, carrot and stick. See, carrot and stick, external motivation is command and control. Trust and inspire is internal motivation. It's intrinsic. It's inside of people. It's tapping into what's inside of them. To inspire means to breathe life into versus suck the life from. So you're breathing life into people, into into into. Co- collaboration into the work that you're doing so that people are contributing and they feel inspired by it. When that happens, they want to be part of the team. They want to stay. They want to contribute their best. So you not only um, attract and keep the best people, you bring out the best in people. And that's what a high trust culture that inspires does. That's the first imperative. If you don't have that, um, then what will happen is people will leave. They'll go find another place where they feel trusted and inspired. 
and you won't attract the best people and won't keep them, nor will you bring out the best in people. So that's the first imperative. And I call that in summary, win in the workplace through a high trust culture that inspires. Well, he's he's the Microsoft CEO is an example beyond belief of of this. You know, and you you speak about this because, you know, I've said this many times on the show for my listeners who listen to me all the time. Thank you. But ego is edging God out. Okay. E-G-O, edging God out. It's probably been heard. They've heard it before. And the point is, is that when you are coming from trust and inspiration, you basically have coming from Saul and from God. I'm not, I don't have a fear in saying this. My listeners know who I am. I have a degree in spiritual psychology. So the reality is, is that it is about kind of this outside spiritual world that you can kind of infuse with inside the company. And you have a great chart in the book that compares and contrasts the two styles of leadership, command and control versus trust and inspire. Can you tell our listeners the difference and how a leader can shift the mindset to become a leader that utilizes trust and and inspire behaviors? What I loved about the book, honestly, if people just got the book and went to the pages that show the compare and contrast, all you really need to do is reprint those and put them on the wall. Because the reality is you're shooting from moving from the one on the left to the one on the right. Um, and it's it's very simple. I could, I'll put a chart when we put this up. I'll actually put one of your pages up there. There's several in there. So tell us a little bit about, you know, you draw a line down the middle. It's like the old Ben Franklin clothes. Uh, it, there's a T and, and the right side is over here and the left yeah. side is over here. We want to move you to the right side. What are some of those things that make up the behaviors? Yeah. Yeah. So on the left-hand side, the command and control side, you, you know, you manage people and things. But on the trust and inspire, the right-hand side, trust and inspire, you manage people and you lead things. So the danger comes when we start to manage people as if they were things. And that too often happens with a command and control mindset. We need good management of things and processes and systems. We need great leadership of people. And the danger comes when we conflate the two. On the left-hand side, command and control, you'll get compliance. You know, it's a good thing. You follow the rules. But trust and inspire will elicit commitment. That's about doing the right thing. It includes compliance, but so much more. On command and control, it's far more on efficiency. Trust and inspire is on effectiveness. Mm. Efficient with things. Be effective with people. Command and control is good for status quo and incremental improvement. But trust and inspire is vital for change and innovation. So we're agile and adaptive and responsive. Command and control is kind of the machinist mindset. I'm a machinist. It's mechanistic. Trust and inspire is the gardener mindset. It's organic and creating conditions for the people to blossom, to flourish. Command and control, by definition, it's kind of about control. I'm containing people, controlling people. But it's in the word, right? Command and control, trust and inspire. It's about unleashing and, re- and releasing people's capabilities and potential and talent, that gap that my father identified, that people have so much more to give, they're not able to give. Command and control is very transactional. Trust and inspire is transformational. What it does to relationships and teams and cultures is transformative versus just doing something with, you know, for someone, it's doing something with someone. And also command and control is very much about motivation. Like I said earlier, it's extrinsic, carrot and stick. Trust and inspire is about inspiration. It's inside of people. Our job is to ignite the fire within, to breathe life into, into that and let, because that can burn on forever. And, and, um, and when people feel this passion and when they feel that commitment and when they feel the purpose, the meaning, the contribution, what it's all about. And I just make this point to operate today in our world today with a style of leadership of command and control, that is the equivalent of playing tennis with a golf club. (laughs) That's a good one. Think about it. You know, the tool you're using, the style of leadership you're employing is not relevant to the game being played. We need a tennis racket to play tennis and that's trust and inspire so that we can 
so that we can attract the best people and bring out the best in people and build that high trust culture that inspires. And you can't command and control your way to a great culture or to inspiration. And then, and then the other imperative, the second one is to be able to collaborate and innovate so we can stay relevant in a changing world. Well, you know, one of the first gentlemen CEOs that used to practice some of this, I don't say all of it, uh, Herb Kelleher at yeah. Southwest Airlines. He used to say, love your people. Now, you have a lot of CEOs that listen to this show because we get most of our listeners off of LinkedIn. And that is the audience that listens. They're CEOs, they're CFOs, yep. they're HR directors, they're people. But there's when you speak like this, you also draw an emotion up inside of people around fear because they're so attached to this before. Now, I I love Herb Kelleher, all the movies that I used to play with Herb walking around with M&Ms, giving to people at his desk and just loving people. In, if you believe that the distinction between motivation and inspiration needs to be defined, speak with our listeners about this extrinsic motivator versus the inter- inherent drive, D-R-I-V-E, that is within people or intrinsic motivators and why it's so important to bring out the intrinsic drivers. You cited Daniel Pink's book or, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you cited uh, David Pink. Was Daniel Pink? Yeah, Daniel, Daniel Pink. Pink. Why did I? I don't know. I do it. But my point is, is all the psychology around this that's been studied over the years around motivation, ver- intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation um, uh, as the driver versus, you know, inspiration, lots of discussion. What would you do, Stephen? to actually help people buy in and get people away from the fear that if they let go, because you know it's about letting go, you and I are sitting here right now, if you can't let go of that old model, you're never going to be able to move to this model. And letting go is one of the toughest things that people have to do. It it absolutely is. (laughs) Here's a couple of thoughts. The first is, um, ask yourself why. Why is inspiration better than motivation today? And I'll give you a couple of reasons why. One is that the inspiration can literally live on for sometimes even years when someone feels this fire lit inside. Whereas motivation, you got to constantly refurbish it with more external stimuli, more carrots, more sticks constantly. Does motivation work? Sure. It motivates people to want to get more rewards. But you got to keep, you know, feeding the beast, if you will, and keep um, providing food to the hungry bear. Whereas inspiration can live on. It's just so much, it tapped into people's innate desire for purpose, for meaning, for contribution. Another key reason that's important is how you see people. Do you, as a leader, do you see people as just primarily economic beings, you know, with a body? Or do you see people as whole people, a body, a heart, a mind, a spirit or soul? And, and you know, so that they're a whole person that brings their whole self to work. And so if you just see people as economic beings, then it's all about saying, hey, look, I just have to motivate through carrot and stick and I'll offer more rewards, more money. Motivation will do it because they're, you know, they're, they're financial creatures, they're economic beings. But if a person's a whole person, Yes, they have a body and the, and the money does matter, but they also have a heart. So a desire for connection, a desire for love, for caring and, and for c- connecting with people and being part of something, belonging. They also have a mind and a desire to utilize that mind and to develop talents and to grow and to get better and improve and to contribute what they're growing with. And they also have a spirit or a soul, the whole idea of a desire for purpose, a desire for meaning, for contribution, for making a difference, for mattering. What matters to people is mattering. And so when you recognize they're not just people are not just economic beings, they're whole people, then that helps you really say that's why inspiration is better than mere motivation. And motivation is not inherently bad, it's just incomplete. Inspiration is far more complete because then you'll tap into the heart, the mind, the spirit, as well as 
the body. You know, you can buy people's hands and backs, but they volunteer their hearts and minds. And they do it when they feel inspired. So that's, that's the first is the paradigm of how you view people. But then if you could also add to it, the idea that inspired people also have another gear in them. They perform better than even engaged people. And I love being engaged. I love engagement. So I'm not going to badmouth engagement. Engagement matters. Engaging our people is very important. And there's another frontier of engagement, another level, another gear we can go to, which is inspiration. And inspired employees um, outperform even fully engaged employees by up to 56% in this extra gear that they have. And so, so you'll get better results. So, so the reason I'm highlighting this is how you view people matters. If you see them as whole people, then you say that leads me towards inspiration. If I also view them as, as having greater performance, if I can inspire right, then I say, maybe it's worth the risk. Maybe it's worth trying to let go. And I'll add one last piece to it. So if I believe that I can get better results and have happier people by doing this, then I'm saying, okay, I just got to, I want to, I need to learn how to let go, but I don't want to, I don't want to lose control. So my advice would be focused heavily on creating the agreement up front with the person that you create together where you clarify expectations and you mutually agree to a process of accountability to those expectations. And when you do that up front with a person, then you're able to truly trust them and to empower them. Because why? Because you have a clear agreement of what you're trusting them on with expectations and with built-in accountability so that in a sense, you don't lose control. There's control. It's just self-control. It's coming from the person against the agreement you set up. And they can judge themselves. They can evaluate themselves against the agreement that you help set up, which includes getting these results and 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 uh, being accountable in these ways that we've agreed to. And suddenly okay. you change the paradigm from I'm losing control to no, I'm shifting the locus of control to the people, but their control is still there. And maybe it's even stronger than before. I like the part you added around the agreement and the accountability, because that will make the CEO, HR director feel a lot more comfortable in the circumstances of letting go. So uh, absolutely kudos in that, because that's important. Now you state that we've not moved out of the industrial age style of management because we haven't yet shifted our paradigm. We've been talking about that. Mm-hmm. We can continue to have an inaccurate map, a distorted view of people in leadership. We don't have complete and fundamental beliefs uh, how do you recommend to leaders to change the paradigm and adopt the mindset of trust and inspire leadership? And you mentioned that your father reminded you that the most significant breakthroughs really are break withs. Uh, that is a break with a traditional way of thinking. Um, and I think what your father said, uh, again, kudos to both of you, break with is the key here. Um, and, I, and I'd love to have you just comment on that for a couple of minutes. Yeah, we're trying to break with the traditional management approach to managing people. The old command and control approach that we've become better at, more advanced at, more sophisticated, more enlightened, but it's still more of a traditional of I manage people. No, you manage things. You lead people. And so um, that's the break with. We, we need to break with command and control style management and move toward a trust-inspired leadership. And it's not just incremental. It's really a, a sea change. It is a big shift. But it starts with your paradigm of how you see people and how you view leadership. Because if you have a, a paradigm is like a map, right? A, me, a mental map of, of the reality, of the territory. But the map is not the territory. You could have a bad map of the territory and, and think that because that's your map, think that that's what people are like. But if you see people as, as, um, not capable, not having a growth mindset, not being able to have greatness inside of them, if, if that's how you view people, then naturally you're going to be trying to control them and contain them and limit them. As opposed to if you see people as having greatness inside of them, 
then your paradigm becomes, well, if they have greatness and I've got to tap into that, I've got to see it, communicate it, yeah. develop it, and then leash it. So that's an example of a mindset, a paradigm of how you view people. Also, if you view people as economic beings versus whole people, you would act differently. If it's economic, then I'm going to motivate. But if there's a whole person, I want to inspire. I like the break with. I like the whole concept of breaking with because the breakthrough to break with, that yep. in itself is a huge paradigm. Now, you state that the overarching framework of the book consists of three stewardships that can work together and build off each other. Can you speak about the three stewardships of a trust and inspire leader? Absolutely. And first, let me say this, that one of the beliefs is that leadership is stewardship itself. It's not just position. It's not just rights. It's responsibilities. It's a stewardship. So if that's the case, then these are three stewardships that come with being a leader and being with being a trust and inspire leader. I'll just state them up front quickly and I'll just describe each in a greater detail. First, you model. Second, you trust. And third, you inspire. So modeling, that's who we are. That's our credibility. That's our moral authority, that we're a model and we go first. So we model humility and courage together. We model authenticity and vulnerability. We model empathy and performance. Those are some high leverage behavioral virtues that are vital to be modeled today. We model the behavior that we're seeking others to have. We're mo we model the values that we ascribe to. Modeling goes first. That's who we are. Trusting is the second stewardship. And here's the point I'll make on this, Greg. You could have two trustworthy people working together and yet no trust between them. Even though they're both trustworthy, if neither person is willing to extend trust to the other. So if we're going to have trust, build a high trust culture, we not only have to be trustworthy, we also have to be trusting and be willing to extend trust to people, to our team, to our leaders. And again, this is where there's a lot of fear. People are afraid to let go. That's where if you can build the agreement with expectations and accountability around the trust being given, you can go to a whole new level and you can become far more trusting than you might've thought was, a was possible. And when you do that, people will perform better and they'll rise to the occasion and they'll develop their more capabilities and they'll reciprocate and give the trust back to you. So not only do you get the job done, you grow the people. I love That's what you say. I love what you say in your first book, The Speed of Trust. Um, I think, look, one of the challenges people have in today's world is uh, overcommit and underdeliver. Yep. And part of it is because the speed of technology, they say they're going to do something and then it never happens. Um, or they forget because they've loaded their plates with so much to do. And you and I could spend hours just talking about this and how you would fix it. But I just want to put that in there because today you need to think about what you can commit to, say no to the things you can't with an explanation and yes to the things that you can, because it's the biggest thing that'll get you in trouble. It is. That's the biggest thing that causes people to lose trust is when they don't keep their commitment, when they don't do what they said they were going to do. So that's the fastest way to build trust is when they do what they say they're going to do. And that's why if you create the agreement really well up front, you'll not only get the job done, you'll build the relationship of trust. And, that's, and then your ability to get more results goes up. So that's trusting. And I'm really highlighting it's a stewardship of a leader to be trusting other people in the appropriate ways. I'm not saying a one size fits all. You got to, build agreements with everyone. You've got to you know, use good judgment, but find more ways to be more trusting of your people to unleash their capabilities and their talent. And finally, the third stewardship then is inspiring. And that's all about connecting to why. It's what you started off with, Greg, the whole idea that if you have a connection to purpose and to meaning and to contribution, then it doesn't feel like work because you're inspired by it. And here's my main point. Everyone can inspire. Inspiring others is a learnable skill. It's not just for the charismatic. So I want to separate inspiring others from charisma. You don't have to be charismatic to inspire. In fact, I know a lot of people who are charismatic who aren't inspiring. And I know other people who are 
no one would describe as charismatic, but who are extraordinarily inspiring. Because here's how you inspire. You inspire others when you connect with people through caring and belonging. And then when you connect people to purpose, to meaning, to contribution, to why it matters. And everyone can learn to do that. Connect with people, connect to purpose. And that's learnable. Inspiring others is a learnable skill. And people want to be inspired. Is the, a study from Zanger Folkman showed it's the number one desire that people have from their leaders, a leader who inspires, and yet they're not getting it. And I think it's because we're, we're thinking that you've got to be charismatic. No, connect with people through caring, that love that Herb Kelleher talked about and the caring and the concern. And, and also, you know, you, you inspire when you, when you, you find your own why and help others find theirs because you care about them. That yeah, is, it's, it's really phenomenal to see, um, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, um, how inspirational he is to people. Here's a guy, comedian, actor, now president of the country. But, and the commitment that people have around what he's attempting to do. I mean, we're sitting here in this time. You know, I'm going to wrap our interview up with this, um, with this, because it's about building teams around you, right? And I'm going to be interviewing and I don't want to mess his last name up, Eric on Friday, the Mount Blind Mountain Climber. Is it Weinen? Weinenmeyer. Uh-huh. Uh, on Friday for a book that I'm helping another mountain climber write who's been up all the highest seven summits. And Eric, and Eric uh, obviously, for those of you who don't know him, I'll put a link to his website in this blog, um, is a blind mountain climber who... Uh, has an amazing story. Why is it so important to the listeners and the readers of Trust and Inspire to understand the importance of the teamwork that Eric created to successfully make the ascent up Everest? It's it's a remarkable story, isn't it? It is. It is. And long story short is that no one blind had ever summited to the top at the time. Eric was going to do it. So he put together a team that had all the right capabilities to help them do it. But the most important thing is the team was united around a common purpose. And the purpose was to get Eric to the top. Not just, you know, usually it's every man or woman for themselves, you know, but this team had a loftier goal to get Eric into the top and back down. And as they went about this, they, they modeled all three of those stewardships in that they were models. They went first. They didn't ask something of others that they wouldn't do themselves. They were a model of the behavior that was needed, of the teamwork that was needed. And they let out and did it first so that they weren't waiting on anybody else. Everybody modeled the teaming behavior and the selfless behavior towards helping Eric succeed. They trusted each other. Think of the trust Eric had to have to climb Everest blind. He had to have complete trust in his team and their competence and their character. And they trusted him and he trusted them. It was a mutual trust that was, that was both extended and received. And they, and they were inspired by that. And then finally, they were inspired because they had a purpose that was bigger than any one purpose, one person there. The purpose was for Eric to succeed, to get to the top and back down. And here's the miraculous results, the outcomes. There was 19 people on that ascent. All 19 people made it to the top and back down. Now, one had dropped out earlier from when he got sick, but he didn't make the ascent. He didn't try. He dropped out earlier in the thing. Everyone went to the top and back. And the filmmaker, Michael Brown, was asked, why did everyone succeed? Because we had a loftier purpose. It wasn't every man or woman for themselves. It was, how can we help Eric get to the top and back down? And that inspires. And when people are inspired, they can perform extraordinary things. So they modeled, they trusted, and they inspired. And you can do it as a mountain t- climbing team and a mountain climber. You could do it as Satya Nadella, building an organization. You can do it as a leader, as an entrepreneur. You can do it as a parent. You can model, you can trust, you can inspire. This is the kind of leadership that is needed in a world that is low in inspiration and low in trust. We need trust and inspire leaders and parents 
and examples to help elevate our society. It's a better way to lead in a new world. Stephen, this book, Trust and Inspire, needs to be written in every language if Simon & Schuster hasn't done it already. Um, and the reality is, and spread worldwide, because this can change leaders everywhere, school districts, uh, CEOs, everywhere. This is what needs to happen in all the structure, governments, right? Because we're in this fourth turning where things are all changing. And it's this kind of instruction and wisdom that you've written about that's so important for people to understand. For my listeners, we'll have a link to Trust and Inspire. You'll go at, to Amazon. Um, is I went this morning and looked, and I see the Simon & Schuster page. Is there a page specifically just for the book? Is there a book website? I didn't see it. Trustandinspire.com is live April 5th. April 5th. Okay. Trustandinspire.com. We'll, 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 make sure, we'll make sure that we have the trustedinspire.com up there for all the listeners so that they can go get it. Stephen, it's been a blessing having you on and an honor uh, to actually finally be able to get to interview you. Thank you so much for your time today and in parting, moving from a command and control to a trust and inspire uh, and I'm not even going to say workplace. I'm just going to say environment, um, because the reality is everywhere we work today, whether it's from home or it's from our car or it's out in the field or it's in an office where you're working, as long as you can love what you can do, there should be no separations. These lines are all grayed now. And if you work for somebody that inspires you, okay, truly inspires you, you're you're blessed beyond belief. Okay. And so blessings to you. Thank you so much for being on my show today and, and sharing this book. Your inspiration is, is uh, magnetic. It's just, it's all over. So thanks a bunch. Any parting words? Well, first of all, thank you, Greg. What a delight and honor to be on um, Inside Personal Growth Podcast. I, I'm grateful. I'm appreciative, but also this, that last point you made, what a blessing it is when you have someone that trusts you and inspires you. And most of us have probably have had someone at some point in our life, maybe multiple people, but probably at least one. So my, I want to turn that around for our listeners and our viewers and say, yes, have you had someone who trusted and inspired you? What did that do for you? And for whom could you be that kind of person? For whom could you be a trust and inspire person or leader or friend Beautiful. or parent? That's the power of this. This will be a better way to live and lead. And we need it in our world today. Thanks for leaving us with that, Stephen. Uh, kudos to you. Kudos to the team at Franklin Covey or Franklin Covey Leadership, Covey Link, uh, and for all the work that you guys do. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.